be back. I feel like we uh, brought North Carolina back with us. It reminds me of my freshman year, my dorm. It routinely, probably 32, 33, 34 degrees Celsius in the summertime in North Carolina, and we had no air conditioning in my, my freshman dorm. This is bringing back good memories. Grace and I actually just got back from a, a three-week trip, and it was great to visit with family and friends, and we actually got to participate in a wedding together as an entire family. Jubilee was the flower girl, Isaiah was the ring bearer, Grace was a bridesmaid, and I was officiating my first wedding. So it was, it was a really good time, but it's, it's good to be back. We'll actually be leaving town just one more time uh, Wednesday to go to another wedding in California, but then we'll be around for the rest of the summer. But it's, a, it's a privilege to be able to, thank you so much, it's a privilege to be able to speak to you guys again. And we've been going through a, a series the last couple of months on stories of honor. And tonight, we're going to be looking at Samson and his life, which is, uh, which is found in Judges 13 through 16. So the, my plan tonight is to start with some brief introductory comments, and then we're going to look at some potentially contested points from Samson's life and maybe gain a new perspective. We'll see. But we're going to focus in the majority of our time in Judges 16 and look at the, the narrative talking about Samson and Delilah and close with some thoughts to see what, what the scripture would tell us about living lives of honor. So we'll go ahead and start with a brief introduction. The author of Judges is anonymous, but it chronicles a period in Israel's history from the conquest of Canaan under Joshua, which is recounted in the book of Joshua, until the monarchy, which is picked up in the book of Samuel. And so it chronicles this repeated cycle of the people of God over and over again falling into rebellion and sin, and God delivers them to their enemies because of their disobedience. And then they cry out to God. He raises up a deliverer. They call him judges in the book, who delivers them. But then as soon as the judge dies, they fall into that same cycle of, of rebellion and sin again and again. And so Samson is the 12th and final judge listed in the book of Judges. And we're going to be looking a, a little bit about his life. It was interesting. I felt a little, little bit of tension as I was preparing this message because of the contemporary uh, common narrative concerning Samson, which I'm sure many of you are aware of. He's commonly characterized as an angry and rebellious man and a notorious sexual addict. So what a story. I wasn't there when they were picking these narratives, but I thought, wow, great. What a story for me to, to speak on honor. But I want to... I want to ask, is this view correct? Has Samson been misunderstood? And to be sure, I want to offer a minority perspective here This contested among scholars. And I really debated whether it was worth sharing or not because I'm still on the fence myself. But I felt like it was valuable enough to share with you guys. And I'll, I'll just leave it to you. Uh, but most of these arguments are taken from one scholar in particular, Gordon Hudgenberger. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. He's, a, he's an associate professor at Gordon Conwell in Boston. But he offers a few arguments for a more positive view of Samson. And to be fair, not a perfect view, but a more positive view. First, he says there's a historical line of commentators starting with the church fathers and going through Luther, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, and Spurgeon who offered a, a more positive take on Samson. But per perhaps even more important, the Bible itself in the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 includes Samson in the hall of faith. And it concludes that section by saying the world was not worthy of these men and women. 
the world was not worthy of Samson. What are we to make of that apparent dichotomy there? Third, the prologue offers a positive view of most of the judges. Is that ancient Near East document, this is important to realize, they didn't have like spark notes summaries. Like you couldn't just look up a summary and it was in a scroll. It wasn't a book with page numbers that you could just flip to different places. And so it was, it was a really key literary device. The author would put layout the whole plot in the beginning of the book in the prologue. So that's a good indicator of what the rest of the story is gonna be about. And even though we see a decline among the people, for the most part, God evaluates the judges positively. Fifth, the judges are portrayed as successors of Moses or second Moses figures. And so just to give one example, in Judges 15, after a, a battle, Sam, Samson is thirsty, really on the point of death, and he cries out to God asking for water, and God produces water out of a rock. And who does that remind you of but Moses in Exodus? Again, another man, not perfect, but a, a fairly reputable figure viewed positively. And then finally, there's actually 12 parallels between Samson and David. And this is, this is really interesting because the, the book of Judges was probably written before the book of Samuel was that chronicles David's life. So the authors are actually looking at Samson's life and characterizing David in light of Samson's life. That's really interesting. King David was, was probably the highest regarded figure, maybe other than Moses in the Old Testament. So now I want to look at a few of the specific problems that get brought up. And first, I want to start by looking at what it means to be a Nazarite. So Samson was one of only two people in the Bible that was called by God before birth to a lifelong consecration that was called a Nazarite vow. The only other person, interestingly, was Jesus. This was normally a temporary vow that somebody would take to set themselves apart from God, and it entailed three things. They wouldn't cut their hair, they would abstain from alcohol, and they wouldn't go near dead bodies. And so these were outward physical signs of consecration to God, paralleling an internal reality. And it was meant to provoke the people around them towards holiness, towards God. And so let's keep that in the back of our minds as we approach some of these different issues. And the first is in Judges 14, one through three, where it recounts Samson marrying a Philistine woman. And so this is an interesting section here to deal with because the, con the common thought is that this is just another instance of Samuel, Samson, excuse me, not being able to control his lust. And even worse, he's marrying a Philistine woman outside of the covenant people of God. So I'll read it briefly. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, 14.1, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Thus he came up and told his fathers and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. It's not looking like a promising start, but it is interesting. He asked his parents for permission. He's not just doing this autonomously on his own, and he actually secures his parents' blessing. It's interesting. Two, the word seeing in Hebrew has the connotation of meeting and getting to know someone and not necessarily of lust. Three, the answer to his father's question is no. There are no acceptable women to marry. 
And this, this may be slightly speculative, but it's interesting that the Danites, we see in Judges 19 through 21, they were notorious for their idolatry and for their sin and their rebellion. And they were actually one of the, they may be the only tribe that didn't go and possess their, their land, their inheritance in the promised land. And so basically, he's saying, no, there are no righteous women among my people that I can marry. Five, excuse me, four, the Philistines, and this was really interesting, are actually not on the prohibited marriage list. There's, there's these lists that pop up in Deuteronomy and a couple other places where certain peoples are specifically prohibited for the Israelites to marry. But it's interesting, the Philistines are never on that list. They were actually a, a newer people to the region. They weren't among the Canaanites who had been idolatrous and who God had prohibited. And for sure, they, they had their issues, but they weren't prohibited explicitly in Scripture. Further, the, the phrase, she is right for me in Hebrew, could, and this, this is definitely contested, but according to this line of argument, could mean she is upright in my eyes. So it's not that it's, I'm lustful, she looks hot, she's the right one for me, but she's actually an upright woman. There is, I haven't found any upright woman among my people, but here's a Philistine woman who is actually upright before the Lord. And same with the phrase, and he liked her. Um, and he liked her. In other words, it could mean she was upright in my eyes. And then finally, when his wife is given to another man, his father-in-law says, hey, what about my youngest daughter? Why don't you take her instead? And he says, no, I'm not interested. I'm jealous for the woman that was my wife. And so he's not just interested in fulfilling his sexual passions. And finally, there was one more thing. It's interesting in chapter 14, verse 4, it says, actually, all of this was from the Lord, and his parents did not know it. Interesting. We'll move on to another setting where he extracts some honey from a lion's carcass and eats it. So he's on his way down to go meet this woman that he wants to be with, check her out, see, see if she really is upright, potentially marry her. And on the way, a lion comes out of nowhere and it says the spirit of God descends upon him and he rips it apart with his bare hands. Now that's, that's interesting. That was actually one of the parallels with King David, who's, who's another man who discovered their, their anointing and strength from God by tearing apart a lion, but David is a shepherd boy. And so he goes down, meets the young woman, sees that she's upright in his eyes, and on his way back, it says that he, he sees that there's a beehive in the lion and he goes and extracts honey. So immediately you would think, oh, he's breaking his Nazarite vow. He wasn't supposed to go near any dead bodies. But if you look at the context in number six, it's explicitly mentioning human bodies, but it doesn't mention animal bodies. And actually, any animal body that you killed yourself is clean to you, not for eating, but for using. And so the Israelites actually killed animals and used them as skins for the tabernacle, the most holy place of God. So clearly, it can't refer uh, just to, to animal skins or to, to animals being unclean. And so he takes the honey, and in another interesting parallel in 1 Samuel 14, another young man who goes and wins a victory by himself and comes back is uh, Jonathan, Saul's son. And after his victory, he goes and eats some honey and is considered a, a blessing and a gift from God. Let's look at two more incidents in Judges 14, I, I know I'm going through these 
quickly. You can, you can look this up and search it out online if, if you'd like to look further. And I, I would encourage you to, because these are definitely contested positions. But I think, I think he does have some compelling things that are worth looking at. So he, has a, so he decides to marry his bride. And it was common custom for them to have a, a feast for seven days. And so he goes, and it, I think it's, it's important to notice that this wasn't necessarily his doing. He wasn't trying to hold, hold a feast for seven days so he could drink and get drunk, but he was accommodating the Philistines. And their god, Dagon, was actually like a wheat god or a beer god. And at archaeological digs of Philistine settlements, they find a lot of beer jugs. Like they basically worshipped alcohol. And so he's here in this setting, and they're probably trying to get him drunk, but they don't know he's a Nazarite. Like his whole life, he's been trained to abstain from alcohol. And there's no explicit indication in the text that he broke that vow in this moment. And then finally, and this is definitely the most contested. I don't know if I actually can fully agree with this or not. But in Judges 16, 1 through 3, let me just read what my translation says. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. That seems pretty damning. Excuse my language. It seems pretty straightforward. And so the argument goes that he went into her does not inherently refer to sexual activity, but could have the connotation of he went into her house. And where else do you remember godly men going into a prostitute's house and there's no connotations of sexual immorality, but the spies in Joshua 2 going into the promised land and scouting it out in order to conquer it. And they enter the prostitute Rahab's house and she ends up being a godly woman and repenting and being included in the people of God. So whether you buy that or not is interesting to think about. But I think I share that because I think ultimately when I get to our conclusion, I don't think what we're ultimately going to conclude about an honorable life is dependent on this being a true or false interpretation. But I think it could potentially shed a different light on our May passage that I want to look at in Judges 16, 4 through 31. And so we'll pick up here in verse 4, 16, 4. Excuse me, it's kind of dark up here. I'm trying to find the text. It says, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble, men, to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue him. So the reason I mention all of that other stuff is I think it, it opens the possibility of a different way of reading this passage. So if you just think Samson is just a, a wild man who can't control his hormones, here he is again with yet another Philistine woman in a very precarious situation. And it just seems so obvious in verse 6, she's trying to trap him. Like what, what could he be thinking? This is just the ultimate example of his stupidity. But is it possible that this actually isn't a case of lust? but potentially true love. Again, as we mentioned, she is another Philistine woman, but that doesn't automatically disqualify her as an ungodly person if her heart was toward God. And it's interesting, again, in the Hebrew, the word that is translated love is used 195 times in the Old Testament, and not once does it have any connotation or insinuation of lust. And so it appears 
And again, even, even maybe if he is in a, not making the best choices, according to the, the other way of thinking, it does appear that he genuinely loves this woman and it's not a case of lust. And if we had more time, we could go into the details. When, when he's lying with her, it's not actually in the bedroom, the inner bedroom of the house, but he's actually in a public room in the outer courts of the house. And it's actually the Philistines who are waiting to ambush him who are in the inner, the inner bedroom. But just to summarize verses seven through 15, three times she asked, them, she asked him this question, what is the secret of your strength? Tell me. And he gives her an answer and she tries it and it ends up failing. And again, it just seems, what's going on here? Doesn't he get the picture? But if you view this as a, as a real loving relationship, at least on Samson's part, he's just making himself vulnerable and divulging his heart and entrusting himself to somebody that he loves. And so again, it could just look ridiculous. It doesn't seem to speak well of his character. But then again, it's interesting that Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, and yet he picked him to be his disciple. What does that mean? It doesn't, all I'm trying to say is it doesn't have to necessarily reflect poorly on Samson. So let's pick up again in verse 18. It says, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she went and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought her the money in their hands. And interestingly, it was also Judas who betrayed Jesus for money. It's interesting, all these intertextual parallels. Skipping ahead to verse 20. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand and the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And it's important to note that when Samson was born, it was prophesied by God that he would be a deliverer of his people and he would begin to deliver them from the Philistines. And he actually began to make good on that. In one, one passage in, in chapter 15, he actually killed a thousand Philistines. Verse 25, and when their hearts were merry, in other words, when they were drunk, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rest, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. 
And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. And so what are, what are we to make of this? Again, another ending that doesn't seem very promising. Did he just end up committing suicide at the end here? I think whatever you think about the preceding arguments about Samson and his person, I think it would be a mistake to focus primarily on his behavior. And I think it would miss the point of the wider narrative. If we had more time, we would look at the whole story of Judges. And I think it actually tells us more about who God is than anything about Samson that we're to emulate or not to emulate. Throughout the Judges, God pursues a faithless people who over and over again betray him and rebel against him. But I think this is the key here. God's honor is that our decisions do not compromise his character. He remains uncompromisingly good, faithful, merciful, compassionate, and loving in spite of how we respond. He will not compromise his person because of what we, of what others say or do. And God will not cease to be good because we choose not to be. And he will not cease to be loving even when we reject him. Does that make sense? He's not going to change who he is because of who we are or who we choose not to be. And I think some of us need to hear this. Our inability to faithfully follow God at all times doesn't change his character or his heart towards us. Just because you mess up doesn't mean that he doesn't love you anymore. He's, he's not the one that's changing. And we don't have to rest our hope in our own faithfulness and ability to follow. Conversely, his uncompromising goodness also means that he's, he's just and he's holy. And I think maybe for some of us at times, if we get hard in our heart and we're, not, we're unrepentant, God is ultimately faithful to judge us for our sin and let us have the consequences of our decisions. However, in light of God's uncompromising goodness, I think we can, we can see that Samson's life is honorable and that he ultimately fulfilled, at least partially, God's purpose for his life in delivering his people from the Philistines. And here's the key point. This in spite of the fact that he was misunderstood by his parents in Judges 14. They don't understand what's going on. He was betrayed by his wife on his wedding night in 1417. He was betrayed by his people in 15, 9 through 13. They actually hand him over to the Philistines. And finally, he was betrayed by Delilah. And how easy would it have been for him to wallow in bitterness and unforgiveness towards the people of God and himself. Like, imagine that. Everybody you trust and you love betraying you. How would you respond to that? And I think here is Samson's honor. And he gives us a picture of Jesus, a picture of what God's like, who similarly was misunderstood by his parents. Jesus' parents didn't understand what he was about. He was betrayed by his friends, the men that he had spent three years with, and he was betrayed by his people who ultimately handed him over to the Romans to be killed on the cross. And they both refused to become bitter. They still trusted in God's goodness and fulfilled God's purpose for Samson, at least in a measure, in serving and blessing others 
through their self-sacrifice. So imagine that the end of that text that I read, you're down there in the dungeon. You're a prisoner of the people that God promised that you'd help deliver your people from. You've been betrayed by everybody that you've loved repeatedly and maliciously, and you still trust God to fulfill his purpose through you. You still trust in God's goodness. I think that's where Samson's honor is. And I believe that this is God's dream to have a people who will similarly not let their circumstances or other people's behavior define them. When others persecute or betray us, how do we respond? It's easy to love those who love us. And to be fair, that's actually pretty hard too. Just just loving people who love us is already hard enough. But what about people who betray us, persecute us? It's another thing to show love and compassion in those moments. And we've all been hurt by those we've loved and trusted. We've all experienced injustice at the hands of strangers. How do we respond to that? I think for those of you, and this, this will be in different measures, different situations in our life, but for those of you who are students, high school, college, for you to take a stand and to live a pure life on your campus against the prevailing norms of drunkenness and sexual immorality that prevail, it may cost you your reputation. It may cost you friendships. But you don't have to be defensive, and you don't have to apologize, because God will vindicate you and honor you. And I've seen so many times God honor the faithfulness of people to take that stand. And instead of you conforming to the perverseness on your campus, people end up seeing in your life something that they want to conform to themselves. We've been hurt by people in the church. I'm sure every single one of us has a story where we could take up an offense that would cause us to distance ourselves from somebody in the church. We've been hurt by our parents, our friends, our spouses. I I really appreciated Greg's Father's Day message. It still challenges me. It's not enough to forgive my dad for the things I feel hurt by. I still need to choose in faith to honor him even when I don't feel like it. And I'm still not all the way there yet. But it gives me hope when I see other people who have stories of persevering and it helps me to realize that it'll be worthwhile. And then finally, I'll just close with this story. We're on the airplane ride back to North Carolina. Isaiah was having a hard time. It was a five hour flight. He had about 30 minutes where he was crying and he was having a hard time. There was another woman right across the aisle from Grace and I was in front of her who began passive aggressively cursing at us, saying, you need to shut the the F, F up, get that baby to quiet down. And I was so offended. And on the inside, I wanted to respond almost in kind. But I knew, that, I knew that wouldn't make anything better. And it was crazy. She was actually a mom herself. Her child wasn't on board, but she was actually a mother herself. And how was I going to respond in that moment? I wish I could tell you that I did, did things perfectly. I tried to confront her. I knew it wouldn't help to escalate the situation. But I still didn't know what to do. I think it bothered me afterwards. But I think afterwards, when I was praying about it, I just thought, you know, I could have complained to the stewardess. It's amazing. You know, in hindsight, it's like, oh, that would have been such a clear thing to do. That would have been within my rights. But when you're in the heat of the moment, sometimes it just doesn't all come together for you. But I felt like what God's heart, what he was speaking to me, was to ask the stewardess if there was a a seat further up in the plane in Economy Plus and say, here, I'm going to buy your ticket so you can have a quiet ride up there. And my wife still doesn't think that was a good idea. But I just know if I complained to the stewardess and gotten her to calm down, that wouldn't have changed what was going on in her heart. 
She was drinking alcohol too. Like what would cause a mother to act that way? There's something broken on the inside. And it's only an act of God's unmerited goodness and favor that could adjust that. So we can't do this ourselves. I didn't know what to do in that moment. We need each other. Are we gonna defend ourselves and take up our rights and let our offenses and bitterness hinder us from relationship and from God's purposes? Or could we dare to believe that God's goodness and faithfulness can overcome evil and that forgiveness can actually overcome our offense and bitterness? That's God's honor. He doesn't change from that. That was Samson's honor in at least a measure. And I believe God wants that to make us, make that the case for us. Father, let it be so.